Well, one of the things that I love about our church is that, generally speaking, I think we are an optimistic culture. We have a positive outlook. There is a joy. There is a, an authentic love and care for one another and for God and the things that are true and right and life-giving when we gather as a church. I love that about our church. However, with many conversations with people in our communities, in our schools, in our church, in my own soul, I know that negativity and pessimism can tend to creep in, right? And so this morning, I want to look at this passage and consider what it means to be a culture of optimism and, and to consider how a culture of optimism is created in and among us. As a church family who gathers on Sundays and then scatters throughout the week into all different walks of life, all the areas that we live, work, and play, we scatter into those areas and we are confronted with negativity and pessimism. So then how, when we come together, can we create optimism that carries us through the week when we're scattered? There's some things in this passage that help us understand what a culture of optimism looks like and how it's created. Verse 1 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So a culture of optimism is created by gathering to shout. Now, now implicit in this text is a worship gathering of God's people. This is a song that the Israelites would sing as they would gather corporately together to worship God. Now, we, sometimes in our, in our American church world, like, we critique the ch church, and, and there's a time and a place to critique the church and the gathering, right? Like, there, 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 was, uh, there needed to be some correction to remind churches and people who make up churches that the church is not the building and it's not the Sunday event. It is the people, right? The church is the people of God. However, the people of God consistently throughout the generations have gathered now, there's many cultures, there's nations, there's countries where gathering to worship Jesus is outlawed. And so there's underground churches and house churches. And sometimes in America, when we have the freedom to gather, people will critically look at those nations and say, we shouldn't be doing this Sunday morning thing, spending money on buildings and large gatherings. We should just be house churches. We should be scattered. Now, there's a time and a place to have that conversation. However, I have yet to talk to a person, and I have talked to some, who are in an underground church. They're in a persecuted country. They're worshiping secretly off the books in homes who don't long to gather with the people of God to sing and to shout. And so let's keep in mind, church family, that we have this privilege. It's an amazing privilege to gather. And it's, it, it, it is a, it, it is a, it's a target or it's a goal for the people of God. And so because we've had this privilege, and this privilege has often been abused and even overemphasized, that's where the critique comes in, right? Let's not neglect it. Let's keep in mind, this very psalm is about the gathering of God's people. And they gather to shout. Verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In the original Hebrew here, what's actually being said is that they gather this joyful noise. It's not a trumpet. It's not a lyre. It's not a harp. It's not a drum, it's not a guitar, it's not a piano. God forbid it's not an organ. It's voices shouting, like actually gathering to shout, to lift up your voice and to shout a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, so you can be a reserved person. You can attend a church that has a little bit more of a reserved culture. 
You can live in a part of the world where there's, where there's just more reservation and less expression, less, less shouting. But a biblical reaction to God, a biblical call when we come together, is to gather to shout. We do this by, there, there's different ways we can do this, but it's a biblical response. You can shout the names of God, you can shout the character of God, you can shout the actions and the attributes of God. Like, when we gather on Sunday, it may be uncomfortable for you, but every now and then you should actually shout. So, let's practice this together. Here's, here's some examples of what you can do. You could say any of these. During music, during the sermon, right now in this moment, let's practice it together. And I know some of you are going to be extremely nervous and uncomfortable, and you're too reserved to do this, so that's fine. God is a God of grace and forgiveness and love, and he will not look down on you for your inability to shout. But those of you who can do it, let's do it. Grab one of these or something that comes to mind and just shout it out. Amen! We just practiced biblical worship together. Wasn't that awesome? Let's do it again. Ready, go. Oh, that feels so good to my soul. <laughs> I am, uh, yeah, I don't know what I am. Never mind, it doesn't matter what I am. This is a biblical act of worship. And so if we want to move the needle in our own lives and in our church and in our world where we live, work, and play from negativity towards positivity, when we gather together as a church, the historic biblical thing to do is for you and I to hear one another lifting our voices, shouting to the Lord, making a loud noise with our voices. And so I would encourage you, moving forward, learning this. Some of you are like the truth seekers, right? Teach me what's in the Bible. I'm teaching you what's in the Bible. Shout when you gather to worship the Lord. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So take that and then do what you will with that. Keep it in mind. God is gracious and loving and kind, and he understands your personality, your makeup, your hesitancies. He meets us where we're at. He is a good, good God. All right, so that's one of the things that we do when we gather, how we create a culture of optimism, and it's right here in Scripture. Make a joyful noise. This is a historic thing that the people of God would do when they gather together. Second thing that we do is we gather to serve. Look at verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. Verse 2a. This word serve, it means to serve. It means to, to give of yourself with gladness. And implied actually in this verse is this idea of serving in the corporate gathering of God's people. And so again, we, we scatter into many different walks of life, right? And we need to serve our neighbors. We need to serve our spheres of influence. We need to serve the needy and the broken and the hurting who are outside of these walls, as well as the needy, hurting, and broken who are inside these walls. But implied in this verse is this idea that when the corporate people of God gather together, they are serving God by worshiping God. And I, and I thought of this too late, actually, as I was just sitting in the pew this morning. I, I wanted to write, gather to serve and to smile. And sometimes you come to church and you're, you're broken, you're beat down, you're depressed, you're confused, you're hurting. There is a biblical category for lament, which oftentimes we neglect as well, right? We tend to, yeah, I don't, I don't know, it depends on what culture you're in and kind of sometimes churches 
neglect lament. Sometimes they neglect shouting, and then we all silo into our own churches, right? So you have the churches that are always positive and happy and shouting, and then you have the churches that are always negative and lamenting and sad. I'm like, let's just get together. And so sometimes when you come to church, you're, you're not excited. You're not smiling. You're frowning, and that's okay. You are absolutely welcome here. But in this community, there ought to be people who are smiling, we're coming, as it says, to serve the Lord, listen to this emotive word that the psalm uses, with gladness, with joy. And so we serve outside of the walls of the church with gladness and joy, with a smile, but then we also serve the people of God inside the walls of the church with gladness and joy. We give ourselves away for the good of others. There's a family in our church, many families in our church actually, who just serve with gladness. Thank you, church family, for serving here on Sunday mornings to like make all this happen. Every week when we gather for communion, somebody sets the communion up. Thank you, team, for coming early to serve the Lord. There's people who come early to do music. There's people who sit in the sound booth and, and make sure you can see what we're singing and people who sit behind this thing and turn on the video so that people on Facebook Live who can't make it here, or if you watch the sermon later, you can hear it. There's people who come early and greet you at the door, make coffee. Thank you, church family, for serving. There's implied in this passage that when the people of God come together, people need to serve in order to make it happen. And the posture of serving is with gladness. Now, so there's many people in our family who do this, and there's one family particularly that comes to mind who is just always here, always serving, doing everything. And I was, I was with one of the members of this family recently, and I was talking about that with him, and he said, if the church has something going on, I just want to be at it. And better yet, I want to make it happen. What an attitude of service. And we've talked a lot in the past about how there's a time to, like, sit and a time to serve, Right? We can get burnt out that we look at Mary and Martha and there is a time and a place to, to sit and to say no and to be served rather than to serve. But those of you who have maybe been sitting for a little too long and being served a little too much, look at this passage, verse 2. Serve the Lord. Get going. Get active. See what needs to be done. Offer to help and do it with gladness. There's a passage in the New Testament in the book of Corinthians that says not to give out of compulsion or guilt, but with a joyful heart. It's related to money, but it's also related to how you use your gifts and your time, your time, talents, and treasures. And so I would encourage you to just kind of search your own heart on this point. Am I gathering with the people of God? And when I do, do I have a posture of serving? What does that look like for you? How do you do it with gladness? What are your gifts? What are you, what's your capacity? What does that look like? But implied in here is that if we want to be a culture of optimism, a culture of hope, a culture that is full of joy, a culture of positivity, we gather and we serve one another. Thirdly, we gather to sing and to smile. Look at verse 2, part B. It says, Come into his presence with singing. There's implied in this passage this idea of the people of God coming to a location, coming to the synagogue, coming to the temple, coming to sing praises to God. Actually, I don't like the ESV version of this that much because it, it, as much as the NIV version, which captures, I think, better the idea here, is that it's coming before God. It doesn't actually mean walking into a building. Even though implied is this, this imagery that they're moving towards the temple. In the Old Testament, God resided in the temple. So they would move towards the temple to worship God. But now under the new covenant, 
we know that, that God doesn't reside in the church building. And, and so when you enter this building, you're not entering into the presence of God. The presence of God is living and active in you if you are a follower of Jesus. And when we gather, there's some synergy because there's multiple people and personalities and image bearers with the presence of God in them. And so together we come, whether it's here, whether it's at a rented studio, whether it's at a different church building, whether it's in a park, whether, you know, my friend Mike, who's a pastor around the world and coaches pastors around the world, is like some of the pastors that I coach, they meet under a tree. Praise God. That's coming together, coming into the presence of God. It's carrying the presence of God with you to this corporate gathering to sing praises to God. That is what we do. A culture of hope. A culture of optimism is created by a singing. Come into his presence with singing. Those of you who serve on the worship team and those of you who stand out there and actually sing the words of the song, thank you, you are contributing to a culture of positivity and optimism. Those of you who are like insecure about your voice, I'm with you. I used to not sing. I used to just stand there quietly and... and, I have some friends who stand quietly and read the words and reflect on the words, and that's their makeup. That's how they're wired. Praise God for that. That's just fine and dandy. However, I want to encourage you, regardless of how you feel about your voice and your ability to carry a tone and, and, and harmonize, I don't even know what any of these words mean. I have a, not a musical bone in my body, but I sing. And this morning, as I was standing there, I heard voices behind me singing. And you know what it did? It encouraged me. It built me up. It made me glad and joyful, and I was overfilled with gratitude for being here because I heard the voices of God's people singing praises to God. We gather to sing. That's part of how we create a culture of optimism. Fourth, move on to verse 3. We gather to know. Verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. In this verse, there's, there's these, so we gather to know. We gather to know who God is and what God is like. We gather to know who we are, what we are like. And then we gather to know whose we are. So look at this verse. No. And in, in, in this word is, is some mental assent. There, there is some intellectual knowing. There is some study. There is some knowledge, some head knowledge being imparted when we gather. There's also this intimate, personal, experiential knowledge. Now, the church gathering, whether it's a large gathering or a small gathering, whether it's a community group in your home, whether you're meeting with some friends for lunch, whether it's a Sunday morning here, it shouldn't just be head knowledge, nor should it just be experiential, intimate knowledge. It's like the two of those coming together. We gather to know that Yahweh is God. Those of you who were here last week, you may remember me talking about the difference between L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the name of God, the proper given personal name of God. So we gather to know Yahweh, that he is God. That word God there is Elohim, which I talked about last week. So when we gather, we get to know Yahweh personally intimately, corporately. And we get to experience that he is the God above all gods, that he is the Elohim.
Elohim above all Elohims. That he's not just some mental ascent that, that, that we make, like, yeah, there must be a creator. His name is God, while his name is Yahweh. He's more personal than just God. He's more personal than just a spiritual being. However, he is the spiritual being above all spiritual beings, and we get to know that together as we study his word and worship together. And out of this, a culture of optimism is created. Why? Because we get to know our creator intellectually and experientially. And we get to know him more experientially as people shout who he is, right? As the words of the songs that we sing, as the, as the words on the pages that we open up and look at, as they remind us and inform us intellectually about who he is, but then experientially as we do that together, this, this is kind of the meeting of the head and the heart, which by the way in the scriptures is not separate. The head and the heart, they, they're thought about as the same thing, the inner man, the inner woman. And so when we gather, we're getting to know God on a deeper level. We're also getting to know who we are. It says, know that the Lord, know that Yahweh, he is God, he is Elohim. It is he who made us, we are his. We gather to be reminded that we are not autonomous people who are individually responsible for our own life and destiny. No, we're, we're created beings. Human beings created in the image and the likeness of God. It is he who made us. And it's him who has possession of us. And so I want to encourage you, church family, to embrace God's possession of you. There's so much in our world and so much in our own makeup that we, that we like to push off anyone having control over us. We're people who like control, aren't we? We grab for control. We want control, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in relationships, whatever it is. We're hardwired to try and want to control things. And implied here in this passage is that it's actually good for your soul to acknowledge that you don't have control, that you are not your own maker, that you are not your own master, that you are God's and he has possession of you. What he says goes. Where he tells you to go, you ought to go. Where he, where he tells you not to go, you should not go. He loves you. And, 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 it, and it reminds us here that we are his and, and it shows us this character that that's a good thing. right? There's some reaction here to, because some people have, a, have had overly controlling parents. Some people have it had an overly controlling spouse. Some people have been in overly controlling church environments or work environments. So there's this reaction here like, I don't know that I want to be somebody else's. I want to be my own boss. I want to create my own destiny. I don't, I don't want to be taken advantage of or bossed around or domineered. But look at the character of how God owns us. It says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture." makes me think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the character of God's ownership of us, his sheep. He's not bossing us around. He's not domineering us. He's not wielding his power and authority over us. He's guiding us gently and humbly to green pastures and the still waters and through the valley of the shadow of death, if that's where you are. 
And so optimism, positivity is created by us reminding one another of who God is, who we are, and then who we are in relation to God and the possession that God has over us. In verse 4, it it, kind of flows from it. We create a culture of positivity by gathering to give. Verse 4, it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And so here's, it's that that shepherding imagery from verse 3. As the psalmist says, it's he who made us, we are his, we are the people of his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep, and a shepherd will bring his sheep in through the gates to protect the sheep from wolves and from danger and from predators. And so here the psalm is using that imagery saying, enter his gates, enter his fold with thanksgiving. That means actually giving thanks, being thankful for who God is and what God does. Sometimes I think in the, in the church, in the Christian world, especially over the last couple of years, I mean, it depends on your perspective and who you're around, but there's a lot of negativity about the church and even about God. And right there, there's serious questions about why suffering and why do these bad things happen and, and all of that, which we need to wrestle with together. And this is a safe place to do that. But there's also a time and a place to just enter God's fold, his protective care, giving thanks. Like, just think of anything in your life that God has provided, that that you have. Maybe you forget that God provided it, right? Like, sometimes we think, well, I went to work, I did my job, I got a paycheck, and I bought these clothes. I bought that car. I bought that food. I bought that house. Maybe just pause. What do I have? Where does it really come from? How has God led me like a good shepherd? How have I entered into his gates? Am I thankful? When we gather on Sundays, as we gather as a church, are, are we thanking God? Implied in this verse is, is giving thanks with our words, but also our actions. Many people believe that this psalm was used by the community of God as they would give their tithes and offerings. And so sometimes people are like, all the church wants is my money. And that's a that this is a conversation for another time and place. Honestly, I don't care if you never give a dime to this church. I would much rather have you be obedient to the Lord and have an intimate relationship with him. I'm not exactly sure how the two of those won't intersect at some point, but again, that's a time and a, a, time and a conversation for another place. What's implied in this passage, actually what, what is happening here is the people of God are coming together and when they would gather corporately, they would bring tithes and offerings and it's a thank offering says, enter his courts with thanksgiving, they would come and they would bring produce. They would bring finances to help the people of God function and do life together. And they would come and they would give it with thanks. So they're thanking God with their words and their shouts of joy. They're also thanking God with their actions and their possessions and their stuff. We gather to give of our time. We gather to give of our talents. We gather to give of our treasures. This is how God frees us up and makes us an optimistic people that we don't have to hold on to and control things of the future and the things that God has given us. We're stewards, we're managers of what God has given us. We're not owners of what God has given us. And so the call here is for us to enter into his fold, giving thanks, and then this king imagery is in the next part, and his courts with praise. God is the imagery of all imageries, right? And so every analogy, every imagery, somehow, some way it relates to God. So he's the 
the shepherd of the sheep. He is the king of the people. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's the shepherd and sheep imagery. And his courts with praise. That's the king and the, and the peasant, the servants imagery. And so we come, we come into his courtyard with praise. Again, singing, shouting, thanking. Our words and our actions are aligning to focus our eyes on who God is and what God does. And it gets our eyes and our mind off of ourself, off of the negativity that sometimes we experience and feel internally, and off of the negativity that surrounds us in the world. And it's a time and a place to come and remember who God is and what he's done and what he's like, which is verse 5. We gather to remember because it's so easy to forget when we're off on our own. So the psalm here reminds us, for the Lord is good, Yahweh is good. There's a lot of chatter and talk and questions and doubt about the character and the goodness of God. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? And again, there's a time and a place for this. We all experience that, right? Is God really good? And this is a safe church community for you to wrestle with that question. I've wrestled with that myself. I continue to wrestle with it. I've wrestled it with many of you. And so I'm not saying, you know, this, this psalm and, and this idea of creating a culture of optimism, it's not to say just suck up your questions and your doubts and put on a happy face and pretend that all things are good. But it is a reminder that in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our wondering, we need to periodically pause and come together and be reminded that in spite of my questions, my doubts, what other people are saying, how the culture is leaning, how other churches are moving, that we gather to say, Yahweh is good. God is good. He's with you in the valley of the shadow of doubt. He's with you in your circumstances. He's with you. And he will prove himself to be good to you over the years. Keep walking with him in community and with others. And you will see that his nature is good. We gather to remember that God is good. We also gather to remember that God is love. For the Lord, Yahweh, is good, verse 5. His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love, this means it's unchanging, and forever means forever. His love for you and I does not change based off of our obedience and our disobedience. Let me say that again. Yahweh's love for you does not change based off of your obedience and disobedience. So when you're in seasons of life where you are just struggling to obey the commands of God, like you're giving in to the desires of your flesh, God's love doesn't change for you. His love is steadfast. And when you're in seasons where you're doing really well, like you're crucifying the desires of the flesh, you're singing, you're shouting, you're giving joyfully, God's love doesn't change for you. He doesn't love you anymore. His love is steadfast and forever. We gather to remember that. And then we gather to remember that he is faithful to all generations. From generation to generation, God is faithful. So while there's a lot in the world that, you know, would try to create fear in you, like the church is dying, Christians are going to be extinct, 
like the, the, the value system of the world, the worldview of the world, the other religions, politicians, whatever, they're, they're going to snuff out the church. No, they're not. The church is just fine. Where's the Roman Empire? There's Rome. Is there a Roman Empire? But there's a church. Where's the Third Reich? There's Germany, and there's amazing German people, but where's that power structure? doesn't exist. Where's the church? On all the continents, in many languages, growing. Because God is faithful from generation to generation. And so parents, take a little bit of pressure off yourselves that you have to do it just right, otherwise your kids are going to abandon the faith and just trust that God is faithful from generation to generation. Those of you with wandering kids, wayward kids, maybe you are the wandering kid and the wayward kid. God is faithful. He's doing his thing. Trust God. We gather to remember who God is. We gather to remember that God is good. Yahweh is good. I, your pastor, need you to remind me that God is good. We gather to remember that God's love is steadfast, that it's unchanging, that it's forever that he doesn't love us based off of what we do for him. He loves us based off of who he is and what he's done for us. And then he's faithful from generation to generation, not withholding his love because of our disobedience and our inability to follow perfectly well or right. See, this psalm reminds us that God has made a covenant with us, and he stands by that covenant from generation to generation. The church isn't dying. The culture isn't winning. The sky isn't falling. The negativity of the world, again, there's a time and a place to critique and to think and to make critical decisions and to, right? A time and a place to do that. But I feel this needed reminder in my soul as I read Psalm 100 that God is on the throne. Everything's going to be okay. Eventually, eternally. You may be walking through or you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But you can do that with optimism as you look toward the future with the people of God as you gather to shout. Let's shout. Say something. As we gather to serve, as we gather to sing, which we're going to do in a minute, as we gather to know God intellectually and intimately, as we gather to give ourselves away, as we gather to remember. And one of the things that we do every week when we gather as a church family to remember is take communion. To remember that Jesus is the one who lived with per- perfect optimism and hope and eternal outlook. He, he came, God, Elohim, a spiritual being, living in flesh, a body, a human being. And he lived the perfect life that we're incapable of living, always shouting when he didn't feel like it, always serving when he was worn out, always singing to God the Father, knowing God intellectually and intimately, giving himself away to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we gather to remember that man who in, we, in him we find eternal life. I just want to read Matthew 26, 
26 through 29 for us as we turn our attention towards communion. Jesus, eating with his disciples, took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, the faithful God, the God of steadfast love, the good God who we gather to remember. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for coming to walk among us. Thank you for the way that you show God to be good, the way that you show Yahweh to be good, the way that you show Yahweh to be one who has steadfast love, and for the way that you show Yahweh's faithfulness to the covenant, to the point of giving yourself to death, even death on the, on the cross. But the cross didn't hold you. You overcame sin and death in the grave, and now we have new life in you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to the table this morning as a joy-filled people, a people of hope, a people who have optimism as we look into the future because we know our destiny is secure and full of joy in you. And so I pray that you would nourish us now with these elements as we remember who you are and what you've done in our place on our behalf.